that this heart of mine embraces all day through in that small cafe a park across the way the children's carousel got a little bit of, a, of an introduction that goes something like this, Virginia. There is a shocking scene in the miniseries Band of Brothers showing a corpsman being shot in the leg as he goes to assist an officer who has just been shot in the neck. The series fails to identify the medic, a glaring omission from this writer's perspective. That medic was, in fact, Al Mompre. While the world recently lost the World War II veteran, Virginia Mompre, his daughter, and Mark Hudson, the author of the critically acclaimed book about one family's tragic sacrifice during the Second World War, are both here. Virginia is also the executive producer, or an executive producer, uh, of an interesting documentary that Mark told me about uh, in, our, in our last conversation, The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Welcome to, uh, to Playtime, guys. It is, uh, it's beyond an honor to have, have both of you. Well, thank you very much William. for the introduction, and I take I take second fiddle to Virginia for sure. So, well, uh, well, I mean that's very nice. Thank you. Make sure you say Anne because there are there were several executive producers, and and yeah. um, I think you know as with most productions, maybe, maybe what you could say actually yeah. is um, an executive producer of Christian Taylor's "The Girl Who Wore Freedom." Okay. How about that? I love that. I love that. Uh, and, and we're going to. Because gonna... yeah, if go they go search that, they will find out that she actually has morphed that, um, what was one off business, mm -hmm. into something that's called documentary. I get them every day, something. And people can find out more. And it's really neat. Yeah. she She's an impressive woman. Uh, and, and there's great sight. Of uh, of conversations not only with with other film producers but uh, people who worked on on the film and uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> excuse me I'm getting a little bit of flu here uh, and uh, and veterans like your like your dad Mark how are you buddy I'm doing well it's been a long day already <laughs> uh, how's how's that how's that book coming and any any word I know we just we just spoke the other day or a, a week or so ago. Uh, about the uh, about the film, about the shoebox. Oh, and about the film. Yeah, um, nothing yet. I've been uh, given uh, given the filmmaker a little bit of time here to, and I thought I'd check with check in with him probably mid March or mid April. Jeez, mid February, and, and yeah. see how things are progressing. Yeah, so. yeah, keep us keep us up to date on that. That'd be that'd be really interesting. I was just asking uh, Mark how the. Uh, how the book uh, so costly sacrifices uh, is doing? It's doing well, and you know, like I said, you know, before you know, we, it's it's available on Amazon. But we're also doing, you know, Chris, Christine, my wife, and I, you know, yeah. we do our shows and take shows. You know, we we have a uh, a lot of success selling the book um, at all the venues that we go to. So I, I think it's going very well, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah. So the, there was there was a gentleman, boy, many years ago, and and I just did. Uh, just did a piece on this uh, about Dan Pointer, who wrote a how-to book, the the very first how-to book uh, 
uh, on on self publishing, and um, you're you're following uh, very closely in those footsteps with kind of kind of a guerrilla marketing where you're getting out to to venues and and that's probably the bulk of your sales, right? It is, it is, yeah, and it's uh, you know no one no one would said it uh, would be easy, but uh, you know we're we're you know we've like I say we've we've had good success on like I, I think you even mentioned last time you know what, what I you know what we really enjoy is the fact that some of the some of the markets that we go to they're they're you know we go to them uh, several times a year so we you know we sell the book to the people and then uh, then we get to hear their response when they come back the next time and 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 quite honestly I mean, it's been it's been a lot of good a lot of good positive feedback for us so that's uh, real warming quite honestly. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and, and that's that old sales adage of put it in their hands. You know, absolutely. You make that emotional connection between between you and the prospective buyer. And um, there was a there was a gentleman on the mall in Washington uh, a number of years ago who was selling uh, selling a book that he wrote about the first soldiers that uh, the the first soldiers that are on the wall. Uh, in in Washington in Vietnam and uh, and their experiences but I don't know that and it's a great great book I don't know that I would have purchased that book if I hadn't shaken his hand and looked into his eyes and uh, sure. spoken with him that that's that's an incredibly important aspect of of sales man absolutely well, well the other quite honestly, behind it the other secret behind that is that once they read it, and I was privileged to see it in different stages and, and read it, mm -hmm. um, it's so so interesting and it just pulls you through. You don't want to put it down. Um, but then those people who do buy it and read it say, wow, and they share it or they buy more for others. So Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I'm, I'm always telling people that if you can't, if you can't afford to buy it, uh, ask for it at your library. They have a uh, they have a stipend uh, or a budget for for the purchase of of new books uh, or requested books, and it's uh, so so the sale goes to the author, and you get to read the book, and many other people get to read it after you. Yeah, and we were also notified it was, uh, fall last year that the uh, the World War II Museum and down in New Orleans, put it in their, in their, uh, in their library. Oh, so that was, you know, kind of, a, you know, oh, Mark, nice that's thing that they did. did your dad yeah, read so. so costly a sacrifice, Virginia? No, he didn't. He, he had passed by the time it was finished. Okay. Okay. Um, but he certainly knew Mark and Christine. He was so, such, he was. He, he knew that Mark was working on it. So. And he was, he was both actually, I mean, Virginia and Father Al were, I mean, they're such, they were, are such supporters of our, uh, of our service flag, kind of like yeah. our traveling service flag collection and display. So, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I might have an opportunity for you at Texas A&M. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Virginia, I'd, I'd love uh, a quick insight, if that's possible, uh, into your dad tell us a little bit about him who what kind of a what kind of a man he was and and what his what his general outlook on on life was well my dad was ever the optimist yeah and uh, always had that can-do attitude 
and I think that was forged by his own innate um, character, but also because remember all these guys who were part of the greatest generation were forged out of the depression. Yes. And came through not only with flying colors, but with an unbelievable amount of determination. Yep. And um, spiritual ter- determination as well. You know, that uplifting attitude and, mm-hmm. and sharing what you can of your gifts with others was um, innate in them. And um, the other side of it is he, he was very humble and uh, he would always give the credit to others. And if anything, I would say he was a people's person. Highly educated man, but he loved people. I, I will tell you, we were standing, um, we were invited to be at the um, Delta Tech Ops, which is, I think, the largest building outside of the Pentagon in the United States. Uh-huh. And um, they hire about 3,000 or so people to work there. And they not only do the repairs and maintenance on Delta planes, but also on planes from all over the world. 2,000 people waited in line to see him. Wow. And, uh, and and his buddy, Ed, Ed Tepping, and they were signing books, but they were also signing everything you can think of, helmets, parts of planes. I think he even signed underwear, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you name it. And finally, the uh, execs came down and wondered why the why, you know, work was stopping. They couldn't figure it out. And there it was four hours. It was supposed to be one hour. It ended up being four hours. And uh, he talked on an individual basis with virtually everyone. Wow. Wow. And, you know, and that's just like, hi, how are you? I mean. Yeah, I was going to say that every interview that I've seen with him, uh, he was always very upbeat and very humble um, and very forthcoming. Yeah. He was honest, truthful right there in the moment and if if i could say one more thing he he really tuned into what was happening at the moment nice and that probably saved his life Uh i mean he could have been killed in the war at least nine times specifically i can point to situations Uh um and and recall what he has told us but he never felt that he would die number one and that's mind over matter and even though you're in the darkest of possible situations, mm-hmm. if you have that op- uh, that optimistic attitude, that gives you an edge. Indeed, and and uh, by darkest, uh, you you could not be uh, you could not be overstating that uh, to any to any greater degree. Um, but I, so I want to I'm going to come back to that uh, in just a little bit, and we're going to talk about those life threatening times. But I I, I didn't want to um to let the girl who wore freedom uh get away from us uh without without a a, a little bit of a of a deeper dive into it um not too deep but uh but I, I think it's it's really important mark you told me about the girl to freedom principally the story of a little girl named Danny Boucher uh who wore a red white and blue flag dress her mother made from parachutes upon the liberation of uh of Saint-Marie-du-Mont, her hometown in France, uh, it also tells a much bigger story. And I was reminded of the universal sacrifice against a fascist dictator uh, and those who enabled him, which, Mark, you crystallized in no small way uh, with so costly a sacrifice. I, I, I'd love 
I'd love a little bit of thought on on that. I, I think I'll I'll take a pass on this one and 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 send that one to Virginia because <laughs> she's she knows so more about it in depth than I do. Um, I was just we were just fortunate. Christina and I were very fortunate to see it. Uh, actually, kind of for, for the first time was in Branson, Missouri. When we went down for Veterans Week. Okay. And then again, we saw it. Uh, we did a display at the uh, at the theater in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Uh, I think that was just, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Virginia, but I think that was just about the time that it was uh, released. Yes, I'll, I'll let Virginia take that. Yeah. Could you rephrase it? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to set you up this way. There's an astounding video on YouTube with, with Christian Taylor, the, uh, the director of uh, The Girl Who Wore Freedom, in which she asks people, what is D-Day? I was astounded hmm. at oh, the goodness. number of people who could not answer that basic question, including a couple of baby boomers like me, uh, <laughs> no better. Uh, one, one said, uh, it's when we put the flag up, right? Uh, referring to the, the flag raising of, of Iwo Jima, I'm guessing. Uh, and another said he, he couldn't what, recall what, we won or lost. Uh, and another said it happened during the Civil War. What is D-Day? Uh, it's, hang on, hang on, hang on, I know this, I know this. D-Day, D-Day, um, that's, no, it's not National Dick Day. D-Day is when we stood that flag up, ain't it? D-Day? Oh, that's when we went, we, uh, Normandy, wasn't it? I don't know if we got our butt kicked, but we might have kicked their butt, I don't know. What is D-Day? I don't know. What is D-Day? Battle of Normandy. Tell me, what is the Battle of Normandy? Come on, help me out, man. I don't even know what D-Day was. <laughs> um, I want a uh, Vietnam War, was it? Russia, Koreans. Do you know what D-Day was? Something with history. You know, I know it was something in the Civil War times. I just don't know exactly what. It was World War II. I believe that was when World War II ended, wasn't it? I want to say Normandy. When was D-Day? D-Day. What? I don't know when D-Day was. 1946. What happened on D-Day? So it's when we stormed the beach in Normandy. Talk about the film and and the importance you know of is? sort of reversing the lens Utah, uh, the and and talking about the liberation of France and Europe through the eyes of French children. Well, that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's an important question, and it's one that I think um, Christian, as producer and director, did so well because yeah. it um, brought into focus the everlasting impact that war has, especially on young people, and the importance for the adults as the generations come afterwards to remind people in such an instance in, in the case of D-Day, yeah. they they were all out in their effort to liberate and bring freedom to yeah. the continent. Yeah. To those who were occupied. And remember the 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 French have been occupied for not just, you know, a few months, but we're talking years. I mean what really did it was apparently when they started taking their bicycles because that was their little moment of liberation to be able to move around. Isn't that interesting? An interesting insight. It, it really um, my dad, 
my dad told me that story. He said that really did it, especially in Holland. I mean, you know, the Netherlands. I mean, that's their, besides walking and other things, that was their key mode of um, transportation. Yeah. But um, it, what you see even today is that those countries, uh, France and, and the Netherlands, engage their children in every annual uh, recognition of either famous battles, their memorials, wreath laying, reciting important documents, um, poetry, the artwork, you name it, yeah. that recognizes the work that the Allied forces did during that period of World War II. And I think that is the most remarkable thing. Here we are, how many years later, almost 80 years later, and they're still doing that. So now we're talking two, two and three generations, yeah. which is very significant because you have to keep that torch alive. Here in this country, uh, increasingly with, with every succeeding generation, it's increasingly forgotten. Well, even, even among those who serve. Yeah. Which is ironic, but, but. That's that's why I think I think books like uh, so costly a sacrifice and and band of brothers and and all of the other books written about the Second World War, or or just about war and history in general are so incredible uh, incredibly important. But I think even more it's those personal narratives like so costly a sacrifice or you know or the or, or band of brothers which which kind of boils this whole world event down to the individual person, right? Absolutely, because I can't tell you the number of people and, and Band of Brothers runs and reruns, you know, many times every year. Yeah. And people will reach out to me from all over the world or I'm watching or they'll refer somebody or I'll get an email and texts and letters even and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that, what would I do in that instance? You know, it's always that question. Yeah. Here they put literally everything on the line. And they're asking themselves as the viewer today, would I be able to do that? Can I do that? What was going through their mind? What would go through my mind? Yeah. Et cetera. And not just for a moment, but for uh, for days and weeks and months and, and years, right? Well, my dad would often say, and Mark, you may have heard him say this, you know, they were in for the duration, however long that was. And he would say, you know, um, we were there if we were hitting each other with canes. <laughs> now that says something. Yeah. And yeah. when he was wounded, he was actually shot twice in that um, incident. He was well, shot in really? the okay. groin. And, yeah. yeah. Um, he has purple hearts and should have got the silver I think the groin in, uh, uh, injury was a was a through and through that he didn't hardly even notice at first. Right. But if, if it had been two inches higher, he would be singing in the girls' choir, he would say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the other say. one did the other one did the big damage and that was on his calf. Yeah. But when he went to recuperate um and you know going to surgery and so on in, in England and then have crutches and he would be out playing golf with the crutches and uh -huh. so on. They never worried about the hundred and first people 
who were there. They knew that they would go back to their units or back to the front. They just knew that because they yeah. were so highly trained. They were trained to be the best of the best. Whereas yeah. the other guys, they would have to watch them because they would try and, you know, AOL or whatever. I was just going to say, Dad, um, when he was uh, training his troops, he was the medic in charge of the medics, the 101st. Yeah. Yeah. And so he led his men up and down the famous Kurahi Mountain. Well, you know, when they got there at first, they were all bedraggled, you know, they were falling out, they were, you know, this and that and the other thing. But very shortly, he got them all into shape and they went up and down that seven miles, half mile to the base and uh -huh. um, three miles up, three miles, three miles down, down and then back to the base in record time. So they were fit as could possibly be. Oh, uh, that's impressive. So, Mark, you, you can you can speak to this a little bit. A lot of was made of the training that Easy Company went through at Camp Tacoa in Georgia. This is where the real unit cohesion takes place that uh, Virginia was talking about, that these men were bonded through that um, through that that initial challenge, right? Yes, yes, and I, I suppose I can speak to it, and I think we you know, maybe spoke about it last time a little bit. Um, Certainly can't speak to it at a, on, on a level of combat. But as a former DI, certainly, yeah, as a former drill instructor, yeah, that uh, you know. Is it, is it, it, it's, by the way, by the way, is it is it former drill drill instructor or like a marine? Once a marine, always a marine. Oh goodness, yeah. Oh, you talk to any <laughs> marines and you hear that constantly. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, 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 it's it's a process from day one, and th and that's the whole part of it. You know, I you, you I you know you kind of break them down and, and get rid of the eye and you know, create the team and, and, you know, the physical part of, part of it is, is, is certainly a large part of it. Um, it's building the confidence, building the ability the you know, the stamina and uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's, you know, like I say, we, we, we would have, we would have our, our guys, our trainees for uh, three months and uh, you know, what, what you, the, the, the development that you saw and the progress that you saw over the three months was just incredible. And a lot of it was just building, like I say, confidence with the individual, you know, within, uh, within the, uh, the men. I mean, and you saw, I mean, quite honestly, you would there's, see there's some, an intimacy some in that, right? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, to them, us, to them and them to us, quite honestly, I mean, I would have guys, um, that would uh, go to airborne school after after we had them for basic training, and they would ask me to come down and pin on their jump jump wings, which is wow. which is I mean that, that's a, that's a you know that that to me that says a lot. Um, and and we would have guys that I mean just their their physical makeup would change. I had mothers send me bottles of wine because they you know when they would come you know we would have after after eight weeks. Um, We'd have uh, we'd have a family day, and so parents and girlfriends and wives, you know, they would come and and uh, they just they could not believe the change, you know, in their in their son. You know, the old story. I mean, the clothes wouldn't fit anymore. That's exactly. I mean, that's uh, how how true that is. But uh, it was just amazing to see the the change um, in attitude, change in their confidence level, and change in their in their quite and like say in their physical makeup was just. Uh, and that was all within three months. But um, and then we send them off. Yeah. So, but so, remember, in the case yeah. of the hundred and first, mm -hmm. there were thousands that applied. There were literally yeah. thousands that yeah. applied. Yeah. But only a few were chosen. Yeah. And of those few that were chosen, some still didn't make it, 
and nobody wanted to be drummed out, you know, to go to cow company, which was like, yeah. literally, they put them out there and they would drum and the, they would rip off their elements, insignias and so on. And off they went. Like Navy SEALs. Yeah. 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 The book, the book, Virginia, essentially um, made rock stars out of a very few members of, of Easy Company and, and left out. I think some substantial um, contributions uh, and perspectives uh, of uh, of the easy com- company members, and I've got a shelf full of books here uh, about easy company and and some of the others that were left out of uh, of Stephen Ambrose's book. Uh, did your father uh, or other members of Easy Company ever feel slighted? And not being a, being mentioned, especially in the the original book. No, because no. it wasn't about them. Okay. Remember, it was never about them. Yeah. It was always about those who didn't return. I mean, I can't tell you the moving experiences we have had at the um, Colville Cemetery in yeah. Normandy, yeah. and the cemeteries in Belgium and. Um, the Netherlands and elsewhere. I mean, you know, remember, these were humble men. They didn't expect the spotlight. They didn't seek the spotlight. And certainly that was the case with my dad. So no, I, uh, and he was, there have been since so, so many things. There's articles and documentaries and films and um, podcasts. And I mean, there's been so many things with him being interviewed and and all of it was unexpected entirely i mean the last i'd say 15 20 years of his life was a complete surprise have we heard and actually and indirectly i think uh-huh. led to all of these guys living as long as they did they were having an incredible mm. experience rebonding which they had you know some of them had remained connected since the war others yeah. a little less so but and the opportunity to act as a, uh, how should I say, a communication link between the past and the present generations was so significant, they felt compelled to do this. Wow. Not for say- themselves, but to share what happened. And hopefully that it wouldn't happen again. I mean, that's the whole thing. Indeed, indeed. Mark? I, I think that, no, I, I was going to say, I, I think that, uh, I think that Spielberg and Hanks missed, uh, missed the opportunity to, t- to, tell one of the great stories with uh, the story uh, of, of, of your father, Virginia, with uh, about the lady feeding him cherries. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah, love when that they story. Into... Mm-hmm. So, along you know that, don't lines, you, William? Have, have we heard your father's whole story? Um, and, and the reason I asked that is, is uh, a number of years ago, and I think I told Mark this previously, uh, I spoke with a Holocaust survivor in uh, in Sarajevo uh, named Morris Albahari. I met him in a, in a synagogue. He was uh, there was there was a woman from Ball State who was there to get his his whole story. So it, he always kind of told the same tale over and over and over again. The 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 details that you know I, I'm sure uh, me being a war survivor has you know you, you you sort of build a callus around the the most terrible moments right so right. 
he would always tell the same. Well, and the other part is, William, uh, let me just interject. No, please. My father never, ever talked about the horrible stuff. So, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. No, no. I, I think I think that's brilliant. So um, I, I began asking or trying to probe Morris for for deeper um, for deeper insights. So so finally, he says, why do you want to know all this? So I said I was I was kind of collecting uh, for maybe a future narrative about the uh, the invasion and resistance to the Nazis of of Yugoslavia, since I knew so many uh, partisan veterans and and older people that had, that had survived. And I had I had already talked to the other four surviving Jews of the Holocaust in in Sarajevo and Bosnia. And I said, I said, it all started with a conversation with a, with a pilot who who rose to meet the the German uh, air force invasion and bombardment of Belgrade in April 1941, named Mihailo Nikolic. All of a sudden, Maurice just changes. He lights up and says, "You know, uh, you know Mihailo. Oh, my brother. Oh, blah blah." So. And and he just unloads for hours about the the terrible experiences and and you know living in the mm-hmm. forest as a as a child hiding under bodies uh, and then mm-hmm. and then being picked up by the partisans and all so all this and and so the the woman from Ball State says Morris I've been here for six months you haven't told me any of this stuff and mm-hmm. he he grabs my hands and says you're not family so it, it turns out mm-hmm. that he was he had. Uh, Morris had, uh, after the war, had had uh, had joined the Yugoslav Air Force, and Mihailo Nikolic, who was shot down six times in an afternoon by the by the Germans by the Luftwaffe, and and managed to escape, had taught him how to fly, and mm-hmm. and they were the they were the best of friends and the best of brothers, and I I I knew him, I knew Mihailo through. Uh, through his granddaughters who who lived here in Chicago. Do you know the book Higher A Higher Call? No, I don't. It's by um, Adam Makos. You might want to add that to your to your reading list. I'm writing it down. I won't take time discussing it now, but it, there might be a, a link and a relevancy there. You'll understand when you see the book. So so I guess I guess the the long winded part of my part of my question is your your father never discussed those those really difficult times or or horrific no. experiences uh, occasionally remember he he was a psychologist by training too yes i yes. mean he he was fabulous even to his last breath he was yeah. still doing that even though he was an executive with um uh international harvester he had a family practice but no now when the guys were by themselves yeah and I, that may be a different story, but I doubt it in, the, in my father's case. Okay. He would listen. Only near the last year or two of his life did I hear the story where he actually jumped into a foxhole in Bastogne. And remember, they were surrounded. And if it wasn't for Patton's army, they would have been completely wiped out. Yeah. Um, and there are more stories about Bastogne, I could tell you. I mean, there were so many stories. But. It, that's the only time where I heard him say, you know, it was the coldest winter, you know, of course, and people asked him to go back all the time in winter. And he said, nope, it was cold. <laughs> They'd come back and they would say, yeah, it was cold. Yeah. <laughs> I told you. 
And so he jumped into a foxhole, it's night, shooting everywhere, frozen, and he feels somebody next to him he thought it was an American fossil. By the dim daylight, he's saying, hey, buddy, you know, should we go? You know, you, know, you want to go? And um, the fellow next to him was frozen stiff, and it was a German. Oh, my God. And so then he moved on. But he ended up, at that point, he was with headquarters across the plaza from McCulloch, who said nuts. So I, I want to go through. I want to go through a little bit of your dad's experience. So, like I told Mark, uh, straddling my backpack in October 1994, uh, I traveled over Mount Igmon uh, in Bosnia in the midst of of a major battle um, with a in a Bosnian troop bus. The windows were fogged, and for the next 90 minutes, uh, I expected the punch of a sniper's bullet. I could identify with the soldiers boarding C-47 and Landicraft going into uh, into Normandy, and I I, I made that note uh, in my uh, uh, my 2000 um, I think it was 2006 memoir, Everything for Love. Al was all set to make the jump, but something upset those plans for him, right? Yes, and he was upset that he didn't have the opportunity to go with his men uh, yeah but he had an infection in his neck that was so critical it was going to swell to the point of suffocating him wow so he went through the process of seeing you know he was there with um eisenhower and so on just prior yeah. to the to the leaving england to uh, english shores for normandy <clears throat> there were a couple planes one plane with several of his medics in it went down and then others were mowed down you know essentially yeah. when they landed and uh, ed pepping made it a few others made it who were medics uh-huh. so years later we're doing a documentary and in the um Kobo cemetery and we're walking up literally he's walking all the way about midway and he stops at that point i mean what are the odds he turns to the right and just walks down a little bit and stops, like just there. At that point, there's a cross with Cole's name on it. Wow. And he was one of his medics. He said, uh, you know, it was very moving. And yeah. he asked that we come back the next day. And all he could say is, look at all of these young men. Their lives were cut short. Yeah. And then they would go down the road and you'd see the German cemetery. They were all young boys young boys and the american cemeteries as you know are very light and white and nicely kept and so on but the the german cemeteries are all black and very dark looking yeah but the tragedy is that all of these how many people are we talking about 60 million or something yeah. all told yeah were cut short in the prime literally the prime of their lives and that's what has to be remembered and they're still saying that they're still looking at researching numbers and they stay now they're saying that 60 million might be low it's just the, the tragedy of that war. because not only it wasn't just europe i mean we're talking mm-hmm. you know world war i mean it was the pacific it was, it was which world. my father always said now that was the real war it was very vicious yeah. even more vicious than than europe but anyway yeah they were ready by that. the way they were ready to go there but they they said no the war is going to be over and that's it. And it was. So thankfully they didn't go. I, I want to come back to that, uh, that astounding figure. Um, but that, that 
that global, um, I don't, I don't want to, I, I guess I could say shared sacrifice, but that, that feels like, uh, like giving too much credence to, to the, the wrong side and, uh, and taking some from, from the right side, which your, your dad was definitely on, but the unit was very quickly resupplied after Normandy and dropped into the Netherlands as part of uh, Operation Market Garden in September uh, of uh, of 1944. Al Mamprey was injured twice during that campaign. Once uh, when another soldier, and I, I, I'm I'm laughing at the irony um, or the, or the pain of 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 that, not at the not not in a whimsical way, but when a soldier landed on top of him, and again with that infamous sniper incident he suffered uh or at least lived with those two injuries for the rest of his life right that's correct indeed but he didn't dwell on them ever yeah but see and that's one thing he would say he said you know i went to elementary and high school and that was a period in my life then i went to college and then that was interrupted i because i volunteered and i went to the war when that was over with, I came back and finished my collegiate uh, studies. You know, he, he would say, this is a period and move on. This is the next period and move on. And that's how he dealt with life. I love this quote from your dad. Most, quote, most of what they reviewed uh, with me was what I learned in Boy Scouts, except giving shots because we were all, we were to all give, uh, all give the shots. Uh, we practiced on oranges. Well, we never ran into any oranges in combat. Uh, unquote <laughs> combat medicine uh, was just in its infancy when your dad was in the military. Uh, antibiotics were relatively uh, new and nascent. Uh, I think because of men like your dad at 13, when I received my first uh, my first first aid uh, merit badge in the Boy Scouts, uh, I was allowed to perform LASIK surgery. Oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> remember, they were mixing plasma in the field. Yeah, Which, ironically, they're coming back to. Yes, and that was all. Because they found that was it all brand better. new, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah medicine I mean, really hadn't changed a, a great deal for for thousands of years, at least not on the battlefield. The Second World War and and men like uh, like your dad, Al Mamprey, um, changed that. Yes, he didn't carry a gun. He carried double medical rations all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and, and a lot of those were in little glass vials and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, there was a reenactment of a triage unit in um, the Netherlands, which was incredible. I saw it first. I said, Dad, you've got to come and see this. And he says, well, I've been there and done it, but I'll go with it. <laughs> and it was amazing. It, they really did an amazing job of setting that up like a real life situation. Um, and they had all the original stuff there. Mark, you, you, trained, uh, you trained. You yeah, trained, uh, uh, or at least at least saw them through uh, through basic training. But um, I'm sure you have some insights on on how uh, combat medicine changed on on the battlefield. Well, I mean, and we just it did rudimentary, very rudimentary. But you know, I was going to add too. I mean, you know, certainly, certainly the you know, the medical. Uh, part of it was was a lot of that was was new, but quite honestly, so was so was the you know the uh, so was uh, the airborne you know the this you know this this the, the uh, strategic deployment of men you know jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. 
you know, <laughs> and that really came from right. I mean, it really came from the you know from from World War One when you know they you know they the the idea was it would it would somehow um, you know it was the ability to breach you know trench warfare. They could drop yeah. guys behind behind the lines and not have to go through the drudgery of all the trench warfare. But mm-hmm. so you know, 1942 was really you know when we started to kind of perfect it, I suppose. Just basic things like well, Mark, thank you for your service. But the, the other thing are the PJs. The PJs will jump um, from twenty five thousand feet with oxygen. Yeah, I mean, they weren't mm. doing that. They were low combat jumps. They were fast. They were low. They get them in, get them out. That type of thing. Wow, wow. In World War Two. But just dealing with dealing with basic things like like shock was uh, that was all innovated uh, or or discovered from. Uh, from combat me- combat medics, uh, predominantly in, in the Second World War, where uh, if if you're wounded, shock is and 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 I learned this, and and I was prepared for it when I went into Bosnia. That you know, should I step on a landmine or be wounded or or hurt somehow, that I would be able to first of all deal with my own shock, uh, and then deal with my own wound as best as as best as I could until I could get to more substantial help but that was those were things that were all innovated by by combat medics in the second world war right Virginia absolutely that's why dad gave himself in the field after being shot twice and saving his patient lieutenant brewer who was jaundiced by the time he got there because three other medics had been there earlier they had been shot so they called for another medic and he's back with uh, Rainey and he says you know why are they calling for a medic Rainey I I already have three people up there and he says well all right I'll go and Rainey says nice knowing you Al and um, off he goes but yeah I mean that's the point you're right exactly correct and then years later Rainey shows up in our church hi Al as if nothing had happened between them (laughs) you know but and and that's why dad gave himself morphine after he yeah. was shot um, twice, is to keep himself lucid enough yes. to save himself after having saved his patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I, I was just gonna just gonna make that point was when when he was wounded and and the way he describes that wound, it was a pretty it was a pretty nasty wound. He said he it, yes, it, you saw it. Yeah, it was di- dying day. It was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, he, but, but he didn't mind. He would wear swimming suits and go swimming and sailing and so on. I mean, it didn't uh, inhibit him from living life, and that's the key. Yeah, yeah. Mind over matter. Do you think that that rationale or that perspective or or outlook was was unique to to the 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 generation that that served in the Second World War because the whole world, at least, at least the allies were together. And there was a, there was a shared, there was a shared mission towards defeating fascism. And, mm, sort of. Yeah. Sort of. Maybe part of it. I think it's a bigger discussion, but I think that's part of it. Okay. I also, I also brought, brought this up to Mark the other day. Uh, Foy. 2000 mm. feet. The, the the men had to cross in in boots and coats and weapons and 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 gear and all that after after being damn near frozen and starving to death for for the better part of a month 
in in the foxholes. I came under sniper fire uh, and had to run 400 feet about against one guy who was shooting. They had to cover 2,000 feet, and I've I've walked I walked that distance from the Bois Jack to Foy, and mm. it's an immense it's a, it's a very nearly a mile, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But when your life is on the line, there is no question. Now, That's Dad was true. with um, some Brits, and they were in a in a vehicle, and the Brit says, "Well, it's time for tea." And my dad says, "What do you mean it's time for tea?" Well, it's time for teammates. They're Germans right there, he says. They're right there. And the Panzers are right over there. And they said, well, it's time for tea. So they stop, and sure enough, all heck breaks loose, right? <laughs> and uh, dad saves himself, and they save as many as they could, but others were wiped out. Wow. So you have to be able to be entrepreneurial during yep. the war. And that was one of the things that they sort of trained into them during boot camp yeah and they were given an objective and then they said you know go to it whatever that objective might be if it's hanging a wire and you may have heard this story uh in the middle of a zone and you've got you know troops everywhere and they're being shot at and so on but your goal is to get that wire on top of that pole because the communications depend on it then you're going to get that up there and he tried three times, and the fourth time he finally got it up there because he was being shot at the whole time. All that affects a person deeply. So your your father returned home. There's a there was a gallows humor joke in Sarajevo during the siege. What was the difference between Auschwitz and Sarajevo? Auschwitz had gas. There was something else that the victims of of that four year siege had that relates to to your dad's experience. Uh, and that was community in which each person understood the collective suffering and trauma of that community or that that group. That became apparent when my wife's family moved uh, to Croatia about 10 years ago. And I always think of the Band of Brothers and their continued camaraderie over the years. Mark, you pointed out that shell shock um, or battle fatigue wasn't recognized by the by the medical community. I think it was listed uh, for the first time by the APA in 1980, five, five years uh, after the Vietnam War, uh, and had never been acknowledged afflicting civilians. Your dad, Virginia, was, uh, was a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And also being a medic and not carrying a weapon and taking someone else's life, which even, even in battle, comes with a host of of moral compromises and and uh, and guilt and and all of that shame and remorse if not for if not for the person then for their family and the loved ones because you identify with them did that help your father adjust or deal with post-traumatic stress or did he suffer post-traumatic stress symptoms? like uh, like a lot of veterans. No, I don't think he did because he was always looking to the uh, the positive side and the optimistic side. Sure. And when he left the war, oh there's there's so much I could tell you about that, but mm. um he was looking forward to seeing my mother 
And at the time, before the war, they, they really didn't date. They were in big groups. They would go to dances and so on. But yeah. they knew each other from age five. And so he came back and he told um, Sink that, you know, and Sink wanted him to stay full time in the military and the army and go back with the troops and so on. And, and he had an opportunity to fly back. And he told Sink, you know, Sink, you told me when I came in that I was here until I died. Well, the war is over. I'm very much alive and I'm going home and I'm <laughs> going to be married before you even get to the United States which is what he did. Brilliant. He came home, courted my mother. He ended up um, coming into Great Lakes and uh, Fort Sheridan, I guess, more specifically, uh -huh. and um, uh, called my mom, and they got together to, to court, and uh, he was married about a month later. Was a memory of your mom uh, instrumental in, or or thoughts about your mom instrumental in, in helping him survive? those really dark they were quite a team i will tell you and when my father was shot there's an interesting story that my mom and he would both relate my mother was downtown with her cousin on michigan avenue in chicago and they were near um the presbyterian church there on um near the water tower yeah and uh my mother sort of pulled her cousin and said i've got to go in the church now now something's wrong with al and she says, what do you mean? She says, I just, I just have this feeling. I just have to go in and, and pray now. And that was the moment when my dad was shot. Wow. And they always had that connectivity to the very end. And my mother passed away uh, about 10 years before my father. Uh, but uh, they were very much a team. That's Independent a people, but very much a team. Uh, I, I guess physicists would call that quantum entanglement. That if something yeah. is part of the universe, it, it happens to to a reciprocal particle uh, or pair uh, in in the other part of the universe. Um, you know, it, and I think all of us have that opportunity if we tune into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I believe that, Mark. You were you were about to say something. Oh, I was just going to you know just circling back just a little bit about you know about the PTSD and survivor's guilt and yeah, you know, how different you know different. Uh, men, women, families, you know, deal with it. And as I, I had mentioned it last time, I think was, um, I think a, a really uh, informative documentary, uh, documentary to watch is that he has seen war. And it's actually, it, it does take um, members of the Band of Brothers and members of the 1st Marine Division from World War II. And it talks about their life after the war. And it's, uh, it's very interesting to see how different guys dealt with it. Yeah, uh, there were no there question. They all dealt with it differently. I mean, if you mm -hmm. talk with Babe, for instance, and and versus uh, Bill Garnier, they were buddies, and yet they would always argue, and then they'd come back. <laughs> and each one dealt with things in their own way. There was even yeah, a point no. where Dad brought them together. He said, "You know, we're sitting at an event in uh, the Mid Atlantic Air Museum. They're in the same room, and they wouldn't talk with one another because somebody said something. Who knows?" And just so Dad. You know, went to one, and then went to the other, and then they brought them together, and then they're hugging. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll never know. We'll never know really what what the cost, what the psychological cost of that war was, um, because they didn't really keep records on, or or offer proper care or therapy. Um, there there are no records on the broken marriages and the alcohol abuse and uh, and and depression and all the things that come along with 
with that. Well, you know, that's, that's very true. However, I will tell you that that bond was so yeah. important and so uh, strong that the children now two, three, four generations later <clears throat> still meet every year. Our next one is in, uh, I think, San Diego. Well, I think I think that speaks to the moral grounding of the Second World War, um, as opposed to so many other wars in which there was very clearly a wrong side and there was very clearly a right side. Well, he felt and uh, we, we've met veterans from all different wars. He even knew a Civil War veteran who lived across the street. He knew uh -huh. two of them, one across the street and one a block over. And that's an interesting set of stories, too, when he was a young child. Yeah. And um, each war has its own imprint. How a generation and the individual deal with it vary. But there's also the, the arc of a much bigger issue in the society in which one lives and how that society deals with the, the wars. Yeah. Each one of them and how that society deals with them is different. So and people have pro and con, for instance, on the Vietnam uh, wall. Yep. Some people like it, some people don't, and there are reasons for both. So, so any plans to to tell your father's story in a in a book, perhaps? <laughs> I've started, and um, I've I've got a growing notebook of things, but I've got so much on my plate right now. But I will get it there eventually. Uh, I I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Chicago Writers Association, who I work for, uh, and do a do a podcast for them. Um, but they're a, a wonderful, wonderful resource. And I've, I've spoken uh, a number of times about, and I'm, I'm also working with a Marine veteran uh, from uh, Somalia and Afghanistan, uh, who, um, uh, or Iraq rather, who's working on, on his, his memoirs. So there, there are a lot of resources uh, for, uh, for helping someone um, who has, has a lot on their plate. Uh, and well, the other thing is that I, I, I think it's an important story to tell mm -hmm. because it's a little bit unique for a yep. lot of the stories, yep. as is everyone. You know, each one of us are individuals. And yep. certainly that was true. It, it, it builds, it builds a grand mosaic. Yeah. But then the other part of it is he inspired two of my cousins to go into the 101st. One right. became um, Apache helicopter. Mm -hmm. pilot and another one is a medic wow and um and he was active with the illinois tactical officers association and other associations around the country and uh world and and um i mean it's just amazing how that those touchstones are so significant well if you're, uh, your your uncle was a uh your uncle was was a medic for the uh for the legendary band of brothers no uh no pressure there huh <laughs> yeah in fact, he and my dad and his brother, Uncle Ed, uh, pinned the major uh, insignia on my my cousin when he was um, promoted. So wow, that that led that uh, legacy continues. So I could go on with you with all you all, all you guys all day long, uh, Virginia. You're absolutely wonderful, but uh, you you've got a life to get to, and Mark, you're you're in the middle of, of a, a number of projects. Uh, so I'm going to end this way. I, I'd love some of your thoughts about the lasting legacy of Al Mompre and, and what should people remember about Al and other men like him who served? 
they were all humble men. Yeah. They wanted to do their best, be the best, and remember those who gave their all. Every every and every at my day dad's else. funeral, at my dad's funeral, one of our friends made a wristband, and I sent some to um, to Mark. And I, there's one uh, for you, William. Thanks. And on it it says, "Live like Al, pray like Al, love like Al." Oh, how much? And there's a red cross and a, a screaming eagle. He was he was an Armenian Christian. How how important was was faith to your father, especially getting through the war? Oh, it was essential. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He was going to be an Episcopal priest before yeah. the war. Yeah. And so that's why he went to different types of um, religious colleges. He was at Ohio Northern and then um, uh, Hardin-Simmons um, and then Pepperdine. And he went to Pepperdine and UCLA at the same time and then University of Chicago for his graduate work and so on, so that he was prepping himself to learn more about his potential flock. Well, after the war, he changed and he had broad interests, sharp as attack, always. Mm -hmm. He was one of the top three in the regiment um, when they gave the intellectual tests. And, um, and then he came back and decided he would become a psychologist. So, Mark, your thoughts yeah. on, on what we should think about the, the sacrifice of the legacy of these men? Well, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting Al a, a number of times and, and head pepping and seeing them together when we were at the, uh, down at the Currie days uh, in Tacoa. And uh, I, I have to say, every, you know, each time that you were in their presence, it was, uh, you, you just felt the, that you were, that you were around greatness. And it's not that they thought that of themselves. It's just of, it's just how, uh, how you felt about them. And uh, men of that generation were cut from a different cloth. I think uh, I think everyone, I think all young men should aspire to be to be like men of that generation. Quite honestly, yeah. Uh, Virginia Mom, well said, Mark, and thank you for your service. That was my pleasure, indeed, brother, indeed, indeed. Uh, Virginia Mompre is the daughter of one of the original Easy Company members who served during the Second World War. Al Mompre, otherwise known as the Band of Brothers. Mark Hudson is the author of an exemplary work of nonfiction, So Costly a Sacrifice, the true story of, of one family's bitter sacrifice during the Second World War. I will post links to the book and to the film, The Girl Who Wore Freedom, which crystallizes what these men and women were really in Europe to achieve. Thank you guys so, so much. Virginia, it was magical speaking with you. Thank you, William. Maybe we can get together one day soon. I absolutely would love that, neighbor. Uh, and and Mark, <laughs> we, we have to get together one of these days as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you, Mark. You too. Thank you. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. A link to all of our guests are in the notes below. And if you enjoy this program, please feel free to share it and don't forget to click the subscribe button and receive notifications on future programs. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. No. 
matter what the future brings as time goes by. Moonlight and love songs are never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy, and hate. Woman needs man, and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. songs are never out of date hearts full of passion jealousy and hate woman needs man and man must have its mate that no one can deny it's still the same old story of Fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers. 